What keeps you going? Where do you get your motivation? Whether you just want to be the best you can be or the best there ever was, we're here to keep you inspired. Conversations with today's top fitness influencers, coaches, athletes, and bodybuilding professionals. This is Inspired Fitness. Here's your host, Sean Futerer. Welcome to the Inspired Fitness Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Flexigenics. Every year, thousands of people undergo unnecessary joint and knee surgeries. Flexigenics was created to offer the very best in non-surgical solutions that allow you to get back to doing the activities you love. Before deciding on surgery, schedule a consultation and explore non-surgical options. I have personal experience with Flexigenics to treat osteoarthritis and tendon damage. I can confidently endorse their hyaluronic acid and PRP solutions. Welcome back to another episode of the Inspired Fitness Podcast. I'm joined today by my co-host, IFBB Pro, Kimberly Helm, along with our very special guest. VolleyballMag.com has called him one of the most promising and -and up-and-coming talents in beach volleyball. You know him from his signature blue nose. He's AVP Pro Volleyball player, Evan Corey. You can find Evan on Instagram using at Evan Corey Volley. Evan, thanks for joining us, man. How are you? Great. How about you? Doing well. Glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. You were the first male volleyball player from Louisiana to go D1. You broke almost every record at Lincoln Memorial University, including kills, aces, and digs. And you graduated top of your class. What for you, what was the driving force behind an elite college performance both on the court and in the classroom? Yeah, so, you know, for me, it uh, it, uh, started in high school and it kind of just built. And I think the competitive nature of life just took its course. And I I was really good in high school with my academics. So I was valedictorian of my high school, obviously being the first male player to receive a scholarship for men's volleyball and being the first one to play at the highest level were no easy task because there's no one to show you the way. And there's no one to do that. So I think it was just kind of a competition with myself to just continue to to push and be better in every aspect of life. It wasn't like I was really going against anyone else other than myself. I, I mean, it didn't really feel like it at least years ago. Maybe I was like, oh, yeah, no, there was definitely I was trying to push and, you know, be better than that guy next to me in the classroom and just get that little bit higher of a grade. But I feel like I've always just been pretty competitive from a young age. I think that was just the driving force behind such a successful college career. And I think that's kind of how my professional career goes too. You know what I mean? You just have that competitive nature and you just want to keep pushing forward and pushing to be more. I I never really expected to be in the position I'm in right now. So I think now it's like, let's just see how far we can push this. And I don't ever feel dumb if I ever try and fall flat on my face and fail. And I think it's because the expectation from, if I really look back from a long time ago, this would be like a dream. Being able to play professionally, being able even to play at the college level was something that I never even really thought of. So I think just being able to push it to the next level and just going for it and not being afraid to fail is kind of where all of it comes from. I'm going to take a pause here for just a second. Just a message for my daughter. She's in high school. She plays volleyball and she's a straight A student. This is your role model for college right here. So pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> so Evan, you're a, you're a lackey, right? Yes. And during college, you primarily played opposite side hitter. Was that, that was one of your primary yes. spots? 
So I just mentioned my daughter. She's 15. She's also a lefty, and her preferred spot is opposite side hitter. From your perspective, what makes being a lefty on the opposite side so much fun, and what advice could you give? Yeah, so I think the the first piece of advice in volleyball with being a left-hander is that we're pretty unique. They don't come around a lot. There's not a lot of people, and it's kind of like baseball. So I played baseball growing up or softball for anybody out there as well. We're just limited to our positions very much based off of the anatomy and the way that sports fields are set up. And it gives us a disadvantage in a lot of areas, but it actually gives us a very big advantage in a few different positions. So that's like why you see like a lot of lefties are first baseman outfield and pitchers. It's pretty much all you are. So for volleyball, it's kind of the same thing. You are either a setter, a right side, or opposite, and a libero. You're pretty much limited to those three. You don't see middles playing as lefties. I think I've seen two lefties as a middle in my life. And then the outside is pretty much exclusively right-handers. Just kind of the driving force behind that and looking at it from a mathematics standpoint and an angle standpoint is the way that the ball is set to you. If you're a lefty on the right side, just kind of opens up so many angles for you to be able to hit. Whereas a right sider, it becomes a lot more difficult. The ball has to come over your shoulder and it's kind of hard to track. Whereas a lefty, you can go and get the ball at any point and you just are open to so many different attack angles. And so that's kind of how I always looked at it. And just being, I'm able to be more creative with the things I was able to do. And for me, it was great because even though I'm a lefty opposites are usually, especially in the men's game around the average height, I would say is about six, seven. I'm only six, four. So severely undersized as a right side. Hitter, only but- this man would tower over me. And I think I'm going to run my but I know in the volleyball world, because I play recreationally, obviously, <laughs> but in the volleyball world, I know height definitely has some precedence. So I guess that is kind of short. Well, not short, but not the tallest by far, right? No, not at all. And so I think we can even kind of go start going into the, the fitness part of this at this point, because a huge part for me, not only obviously, I mean, lefty being, I had to be more creative, but I also had to be just more in shape and jump higher and do a lot of things that wasn't expected out of other people at that position. Just had to get super creative with the ways that I had to go about training and had to go about my entire game because I had to figure out different ways to score when most other guys are having a lot easier time to be able to do that. What actually goes into training as a pro volleyball player? I mean, what's your training regimen look like? About two hours a day is on the sand. Every day, pretty much. Right now, in season, about three times a week in the gym. As far as like getting actual lifts in, I pretty much go in the other couple other days and do a lot of rehab stuff. So, I mean, volleyball is an overhead sport. Volleyball is a jump, jumping intensive sport. And so that puts your knees and your shoulder at risk a ton, which is where if you look at every sport, that's pretty much the main two areas where people have really bad injuries. It's because, I mean, just the joints are very susceptible and athletic movement to be able to sustain injuries. So a lot of time and effort goes into the stretching, the rehab, 
strengthening those smaller muscles around those areas to make sure that when we get on the court that it doesn't break. It's it's pretty much simple as that. It's funny because we travel so much and we're on the road a lot and it's easy to get out of those routines. And I actually had about a two or three week period where I kind of got just out of my routine. We were, I went Finland back to the U.S. and then U.S. to Portugal and Portugal to Canada all within three weeks time. And so I just like, I, my body didn't even know sleep wise what it was supposed to be doing. And so I was all out of my routines and I just kind of got out of doing my shoulder routine for rehab. And just, just like that in those two or three weeks, I could tell in my shoulder for about the next three weeks, even after I had started doing the rehab again, that it was just off. It was a little more achy and a little more painful after games. You really have to stay on top of all of that in order to make sure that your body is able to perform at the highest level. I can I can sympathize with the the various time zones and countries. I, I travel a lot myself and I understand how difficult it can be to adjust. It's yeah. got to take a toll on on your performance on the court. Yeah, so I think that's kind of uh, one of the biggest areas like looking at it. I, I'm pretty new internationally. I started playing last year internationally for the first time and just trying to figure out the science of how do I sleep? How do I get into routine? How do I get onto this time zone so I can compete at the highest level, even if it means going a little bit earlier, spending a little bit extra money to try and make sure that my body is feeling right whenever game time comes around. It's been fun. I, I always kind of like taking like dives into whatever, just whatever piques my interest at that moment and just kind of keep building like the knowledge base of all of the aspects of volleyball. Cause obviously there's the the game side of it. And then there's the off the court. There's, there's just so much that you can take these deep dives into just continuously trying to learn to get whatever edge I can in whatever way, whether it be on the court, off the court, physical health, mental health, just anything to try and get that edge over the competition. So this is an area where Kim, you have quite a bit of experience because you're in all kinds of crazy things. Just, just last weekend, she was rappelling off of cliffs and rock climbing and, but same principles apply, right? Always looking for that extra little edge, whether it's mental or physical, and you apply that to your various sports. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I, um, I like to think of myself as a hybrid athlete. That's my, <laughs> that's my excuse to play in every, in every area I possibly can, especially when you're changing up the, when you have more variety, when you're changing up what you spend your time doing, you have to be even more careful, I think, with the training because you're using different body parts, depending on what sport you're going after. I'm listening to Evan, I'm listening to you talk about, you know, I know you're relatively new to international travel. I'm curious, you know, one thing when I was competing internationally in bodybuilding, I would always try to arrive extra early to give my body time to adjust. Is that something that you try to do as well, or does it not really have a toll? That's been my, like in my experience already. I've tried to, there's other players from our country that are traveling and you kind of figure out, okay, like this is when they travel here and this is when they get here to compete. And I've already found that I definitely, at, it's tough for us because we're usually, I mean, we're majorly a summer sport. So a lot of our competitions are back to back, but I like to try and get there at least a day before everybody else, because I know my sleep schedule and the way that I sleep and the way that I recover. That's just very important for me to be able to, to get there a day early and have a little extra time for my body to adjust, which isn't still a crazy amount of time. I think right. that 
end up. No, it's still very short. Like my flight lands, I think three days before our first day of competition. So I land and then I'll have two days to like prepare and then we're into it. So it's not a lot of time, but that's kind of all that. That's the most probably that I'm able to get with the schedule and the way it's written up for us schedule wise. It, that's smart. And that is about what you need. So, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your competitions, I assume will be in Europe. So, you know, you're talking five, six hour difference in time. Most of those commercial flights are when you leave the U S they're in the evening. So you're flying overnight, you get a little bit of broken sleep on a plane, but then it's going to take you a full 24 to 48 hours to kind of adjust to that difference. That's smart on your part to give yourself like to know that your body's going to need that adjustment. And for us, I mean, on the West Coast, it's a full 12 hour time change. So your days are completely flipped around. And then, I mean, the travel to get to whatever island you're actually trying to get to is 30 to 35 hours. I I sleep terrible on planes. That's been my big one this year, trying to figure out how to sleep better on planes. How do you deal with the nutrition aspect of training? And, you know, in particular, when you are overseas. Yeah. Overseas is really, really difficult. Thankfully we, with uh, USA volleyball and the U S national team, we have a nutritionist that helps us with everything. So she'll actually, I mean, if we need to, it's not ideal, obviously, but we have means of, you know, greens, powders, protein powders. And, you know, you travel to some of these countries where you're not really sure what you're getting when it comes to food. Coming up in October and November, there's tournaments in India and China. You're not really sure what you're going to get whenever it comes to to playing in those places. And just even being like for China, I know we've heard, I've heard stories of people just eating the meat there and they've failed drug tests because of what is put in the meat there. So it's like not even a question of just even health. Like is the, is the food safe to eat? Is, it, is the food going to make me not even be able to play because... I'm failing drug tests because of what's put in the food. Our nutritionist does a great job of prepping us. She kind of will make some little bags for us with electrolytes, you know, those greens powders, you know, just making sure that we're prepped for whatever trip. And she does a good job checking in there. If, if we go to a country that is safe enough to eat, being able to just have the wherewithal about you to be like, okay, there's obviously the McDonald's down the road, or there's this place where I can go and get a good smoothie, just making sure, I, obviously, we don't have a lot of time there. And it's easy to just like, oh, yeah, grab and go. We'll, we'll pick whatever we can, the easiest thing up, but trying to just be smart about what you're eating. Whenever you're home, I love just being at home because it's so easy. On the road is my like struggle because it's not easy trying to like read other languages, trying to figure out what's on menus. But I have honestly found that whenever you go over across like into Europe and even if it's not the most healthy option, it's still a heck of a lot better than what we get here in the U S as far as food goes, because they just don't add a lot of stuff into their food. It's regardless of if it's French fries, like the French fries aren't fried in the worst possible thing for you. Even in Europe, it's been great because you don't have to stress as much just because they're just generally living a healthier lifestyle and they, they've kind of got it down as far as nutrition goes. They're so fit and healthy over there. So it makes life really easy when you're traveling somewhere like Europe. Yeah. I'd certainly agree with you on that. I I spend quite a bit of time in, in Europe. They do have different health standards and 
Couple that with the fact that most cities are close proximity. You're doing a lot more walking than driving. Promotes a bit of a healthier lifestyle. Nutrition, obviously, your point taken can be a challenge when you're traveling. Really nice to hear that you've got some nutritional support from a nutritionist in particular. Mm-hmm. That that makes me feel a little bit better about what's happening in the in the pro volleyball circuit. Do you have something that you'd like to turn to? What is your performance food of choice? Yeah. So pre-game, I would say the night before, I always like to try and uh, a lot of people obviously will say carb carb load. I don't think we're necessarily in a sport where like carb loading is necessary, especially for me now. There's obviously local tournaments where you're playing five, six matches in a day. And it's like, okay, yeah, you could probably use some extra carbs. But for us, we're playing a maximum of like two matches a day. So I really try and go protein heavy. And the night before, the day of, I'm pretty, I wouldn't say strict, but I'm pretty dialed in on my breakfast and what I need at breakfast time. I almost eat the exact same breakfast every single day, which is like two eggs, some sort of protein, whether it be like sausage, bacon, what I mean. It's, I'm pretty flexible on that part because you just never know wherever you're at in the world. They just have different types of protein. I try and stay flexible on that. We'll try and eat some sort of carb, whether it be like a potato or bread or whatever. And then a bowl of fruit, a cup of orange juice. And if I'm in a place where I'm really jet lagged, a cup of coffee. Obviously, you're limited when you can get to your food when you're competing, you know, when you're doing games, especially if there's multiple games, right? So on a no competition day, what mm-hmm. does your nutrition look like as far as are you consuming meals throughout the day? Are you trying? I mean, is there any kind of a pattern to it? So I still eat that same breakfast every morning at home. And then we usually train around 10 in the morning whenever we're in California. So I'll wake up around 730 kind of do my morning routine, eat around 8.15, 8.30. I also have like a morning stretch routine and kind of just like a little activation that I do before practice. Then we'll finish up practice. I'll come back. I'll usually eat a smaller lunch. So I'll eat, I usually eat about a half a chicken breast and a whole sweet potato. Maybe throw in a smoothie with that for recovery if I need to. Also some supplements and stuff like that. For us, hydration is huge because we're just out in the sun and we sweat so much. Definitely need to just like pump electrolytes in whenever we can. Then we'll eat that lunch around 12.45, one o'clock, and then usually head to the gym for workout around 1.30 and then get to the gym around 1.45, two o'clock if I can. After working out, they actually at the USA facility do a great job. They have protein bars. The nutritionist is actually in the building like three times a week. So she'll make smoothies for us whenever she's there. Plenty of options post-workout for us as far as fueling and recovering goes. And then dinner at home is always a big dinner. (laughs) I think uh, I have a whoop. So it's like, I think I'm burning around 30 800 to 4,200 calories a day for training. Whenever I get home for dinner, you can, you can just kind of tell like, okay, today we're going big. We, we, we're, we, we burned a lot of calories today. Putting it back uh, in. And, and we're eating a lot of food. Today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then when you, so when you train, when you weight train, especially after practicing before that, so I'm assuming that your weight training is more for main, maintaining your strength and your structure versus growth, muscle growth necessarily. 
Yeah, especially in season. In season's a lot of maintaining the strength, maintaining our power and explosiveness. Off season is a lot of obviously, I think kind of just in any sport, you're just going for gains. You're trying to, okay, this is my weak point. Like, okay, I really figured out in the last season, this is somewhere I want to gain. So we're going to go and attack these areas. I've just always naturally kind of, well, not naturally, I worked my butt off in college to be able to get to a point where my body was just like, I'm pretty fit. I don't really have any, like, I wouldn't say like major deficiencies, like, oh, like, like muscle group wise. So I'm able to a lot of the times focus on the gains and where I can add. And I don't have to worry about putting on muscle. It's more about maintaining that muscle. What does that muscle look like? Where am I like taking away from or adding a little bit too extra depending on where my strengths and weaknesses are right now. And we have a strength and conditioning coach where it's been great. I can talk to him and he's like, okay, if this is what you're wanting and this is what you're feeling, we'll tailor the workout and we'll tailor your program to be able to do all of those things, which has been great. Having a good support team is everything. So, you know, to Sean's point, hearing that, you know, hearing about a nutritionist and and a strength and conditioning coach, which I would expect at the level that you're playing at that, you know, you would have that kind of stellar support, but it's really, it's great to hear how interactive they are. It gives y'all a learning platform so that you know how to handle things on your own as well. And you can adjust to your body as well. Yeah. Imagine it's a lot more functional training, you know, agility based, you're working on increasing your vertical or, you know, swing patterns or, you know, whatever the case may be. In season, our strength and conditioning coach, his philosophy is to try and limit the amount of jumping reps. So he's trying to figure out different ways that we can still increase, you know, and maintain on a lot of our agility and explosive movements, but without having to have that same impact on our knees all the time because we're, I mean, if we're practicing five days a week, four or five days a week, most of those jumping intensive days, especially in season, it's a lot of competition days in season when you're competing against other teams in practice, you're jumping already at practice. I mean, at least probably 7,500 times. It's like, okay, well, if you're doing that on the sand, then we don't need to necessarily be worried about increasing vertical at this moment because you're going to just, wear yourself down to your bones and that's when injuries start to happen off season. He definitely focuses a lot on trying to add in those areas, but in season, he's like, all right, we're trying to cut. He almost cuts out jumping from our uh, programs completely in season. What is the difference in how you train and how you prepare and what drills that you do for outdoor being on sand versus what it would be indoor? So I know the biggest difference, and this is just from playing, the way that we jump is very different as a sport where in the sand, it's obviously very difficult to move indoor. The way that you jump, you actually kind of jump this way a little bit. So you can jump into the ball and you're going up and forward versus beach. Everything is completely straight up and down. And obviously this is a dramatic 45 degree angle of jumping is not really makes sense, but like you're jumping a little bit forward as you go indoor versus beach you're trying to maximize and if you try and push forward and up in beach the sand is just so shifty that it usually you'll kind of just fall and not jump at all and that's when a lot of people like if you watch people who don't play beach volleyball try and play on the beach that's usually how they jump and that's why it looks like they're about to fall on their face every time that they jump 
it's natural to to jump like that. You want to jump naturally a little bit forward, but in the beach, you want to try and jump as straight up and down as possible. That's definitely one of the big differences. And then since you do that, we are such a quad heavy sport. So if you jump and you look at the mechanics of jumping, whenever you're jumping straight up and down, it becomes a lot more quad heavy. So we actually try and I know for me right now, it's a big uphill battle is trying to get everything posterior chain, firing a little bit more, building the strength back there, because it's just so quad heavy with your movements. And even in your agility movements, you're pushing off and it's so quad heavy trying to push through the sand because you try and push through your toes a lot. That's just kind of like the way our movements go. Sean, you're yeah. getting all the valuable secrets it takes to your daughter. Okay. <laughs> hey, she's going to love this. I <laughs> so I played at a very local level. I, I was mm-hmm. living up in Virginia near Washington, DC, played in local circuits there. I, I had a, a, a wonderful partner named Ray Chen. So Ray, if you're listening, you know, thanks, man. He carried me a lot. For some of the same reasons that you're describing, right? I, I grew up playing indoor. I, I played a little bit in my youth, a lot of rec leagues and stuff like that. I got used to jumping up and forward. And so when I transitioned to playing with Ray in the outdoor, I found myself doing that. And more oftentimes than not, I was in the net. I was also disadvantaged by the fact that I'm not quite as tall as you either. I'm only about six one. It was challenging. We did okay, though. We, 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 we took a couple of local trophies away. But that's a great point. There are some key differences between the two. And the way that you have to train for those differences is a little bit different as well. It's going to push you down the path of very different types of exercise. There's lots of different types of training. Physical is just one part of it, right? There's also the the mental aspect. What do you do for mental conditioning? Kind of just to add to our, our team, our list of people who have been just such a great support staff. We also have a sports psych through USA Volleyball, which is been awesome just whether it be personal team i always find for me since uh at lincoln memorial my first year was the first year of the program the entire time i was there it was all about culture and building culture and chemistry and establishing that that's always been a big part of my mental as far as thinking about the game and especially in a a two-person sport i always say that the best teams if you watch the best teams they make one plus one equal three. It just seems like that they they have something extra on the court that it seems it's a little bit extra to score a point against them. They've just got that kind of intuition and they're in tune with each other. They've practiced and repped out things over and over again. They have talked through everything. They make one plus one equal three. It almost feels like it's one plus one equals five, right? Now you've got the two of you as a team on the court and you've mm-hmm. got your, your strength and conditioning, your nutrition, your, your, your mental health. Like That's a fantastic team. Yeah. And if you can have everybody build up and just kind of be on the same page, it's just such a huge advantage. And then you add in the coach. So if you want to make it six, I mean, it's just the value of being together as a team and understanding each other. If you understand what makes somebody mad, if you understand like what makes them play better, just knowing all of those things and knowing how to manage each other. And, you know, you're going to be in a lot of high pressure moments. They're not always going to go your way. You know, you have to figure out in those moments, in those high stress situations, how to best manage each other and how to get the best out of each other in those moments. That's where I think it becomes most valuable is when it's 14 all in the third set and, you need two points. You have to have a two-point win over that team. You've got to figure out a way 
how to differentiate in that super high stress moment. And I think a big part of it honestly comes from the confidence that you instill in each other as well. So not only do you know each other, but in that moment, how do you make that person feel confident? How do you make them feel like no matter what happens right now, like we're going to win this game. So I think that's a huge part of me for me, the mental aspect of the game and in a partner sport, it just becomes so much more magnified because playing indoor, you can kind of have one person who's having an off game and you can manage through that and you can obviously talk them up and the team aspect helps out a ton in that moment because not now you have five guys who are instilling confidence in you. And that is way different than having one person trying to talk you off the ledge if you're struggling in that moment. So really knowing your partner in that one-on-one intimate situation becomes way more magnified. You can be the guy in any given day. You're the guy that might be struggling or your partner's the guy that's struggling. Trying to figure out how to have your partner's back and they have your back in all those situations is, I think, where that's where the, the, the best teams are made is those those teams that have that. You've had two pretty incredible partners over the past, what, two years, Logan Weber and, and Troy Field. What's it been like for you guys as you've learned each other's styles, personalities? What's that like when you when you have to do that? Yeah, and so I think that's where the interesting part comes in, right? You've got guys who respond well to maybe a little bit more of the old school approach where it's like, you can yell at them, you can kind of get under them a little bit. They respond well to that, whereas there's partners where you sometimes kind of have to, no matter what happens, everything's going to be okay. We've got this. And then there's some people who don't want any feedback because if you're acknowledging the situation and you're acknowledging the pressure, then they start feeling the pressure more. You kind of have to lay off of that talk and just like, you know what, it's just the next point and we don't care no matter what finding out how each person ticks and what makes that person tick and in those high stress moments, what is going to make them respond best is it's really difficult to find out, but it's almost, you just kind of have to either one talk through it before because some people know, but some people don't know. And so now you have to, okay, in the game, you know, maybe we lose a couple of games because I say the wrong thing, but over the long haul, longer period of time, now we're going to be better because I'm figuring out this. And now I know how to respond in these moments in order to be able to give my partner what they need in order to to win. So for you, when you're talking about how you match up with a partner, what are your biggest strengths as far as physical and character trait? What are the top strengths that you have? And then what are you looking for in a partner to offset that? I almost have kind of been counteracting myself a little bit, I think, in this year and learning to be a little bit more mature. But like I was the younger guy. I'm still one of the youngest guys on tour. It's kind of that in any sport, you have the young person coming up. They're a little bit more fiery. They're hungry to win. And, but that also is kind of their downfall, right? They get a little too hungry. They get a little too fired up. And then, you know, you go and make a stupid mistake late in the game because you were so amped up and so fired up to be there. And you want to win so bad that you almost over push or you're trying a little too hard. So this year I've been doing a lot, honestly, with myself, obviously we can ride that high, but not trying to get too high in those moments and trying to more just be steady and trying to um, just be like that steadying presence. That was always good for me before. So like last year and in previous years, having that steadying presence was huge for me. Just kind of looking at my game and how to mature and how to kind of become a little bit better is to maybe be that a little bit more 
myself or have having that guy that can be the steady presence. And I feel like I can kind of feel that in a partnership. You can kind of feel, okay, there, there's more people that are more fiery and then there's people that are more steady presence and trying to figure out. Now I feel like I'm a little more comfortable in doing both. So that feels really good. Kind of just diversifying the toolbox a little bit, trying to be able to play with whoever I can. There's another aspect, right, of the of the mental conditioning, and that's that's how you deal with frustration and disappointment, right? Not every match is going to go your way. Not every tournament is going to be a, a podium. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think for me, this has been like a really tough one because it's like you have this moment, right? And you have these times where you're just super frustrated. You know, no matter what you tell yourself, it's going to hurt. It's going to sting. I always allow myself to feel the emotion because I think that's healthy. You need to to feel whatever's happening. If you just win a tournament, like I've seen like people win tournaments and like, it's like, you know, they're at a funeral and I'm like, why, why are you like, it doesn't even like, they're not even happy that they won. You work so hard, you bust your butt so hard. And the moments where you're supposed to celebrate, you celebrate. It, it feels good. That's why people love watching sports. That's why like it's raw emotion. It's the competitive spirit. It's like, that's, what you are striving for. So when you reach that mountaintop, like enjoy the mountaintop. When you feel like you have gotten as low as you can get, feel as low as you can get and let that sit for a second. But I always also tell myself there's, you put a time limit on things, right? For me, I've always tried to to be fast with that time limit. I've always said like post game, let's try and be 10, 15 minutes, whatever emotion you're feeling for that 10 to 15 minutes, feel it, process it, and try and move on. Obviously, some losses, some wins, you let that process a little bit longer. There's like this stretch in July where it was like heartbreaking loss after heartbreaking loss. And it was just like, are we ever going to go get over this hump at all? And those, I, I felt those definitely for a little bit longer. I think the big thing for me is, and you can go and watch the film after, but I think that's the, the, the toughest part is whenever you're watching that film, you feel it again. But I think you have to learn from those mistakes and even your wins, right? You can learn from your wins as well. Okay, what was I doing in this time preparation-wise? What was I doing? Like if there's something even nutrition-wise, okay, like if there's something like different I was eating or, you know, is there a different mind space I was in beforehand? Is there something I was doing training-wise and like reflecting and seeing, okay, this is the space I need to live in. This is where I need to improve in for the future, whether it be a skill, obviously that's the easy part. The the tougher ones where it's just like mentally, you felt like you kind of fell apart a little bit and you let the pressure get to you. But those are, I think the moments that build you, you know, that really tough July set us up for in August where we were playing three big events in a row. You know, we won two really tight matches in Chicago just this past weekend. We won super tight one in the third set. And, you know, if you don't go through those moments of pressure and those moments of toughness in that month before, does that even happen? I, I don't know. You learn from that moment, you process that moment. And then in the future, I'm like thinking about it now. We lost that same team in the beginning of July in a, in a similar match where it was super tight. And, you know, you learn from those moments and you learn what the other team's doing. It comes down to making the plays, obviously, but those are the moments that you kind of remember right after that win. you're like, okay, like we definitely learned from that moment and we learned and overcame, which is just a great feeling. I think that's incredibly self-aware on, on your part. 
Kim, this ties in so nicely to some of the other conversations we've had about different circumstance, different set of factors influencing you as an athlete give a different result, right? Evan mentioned different nutrition or different mindset, right? We usually see the same thing in bodybuilding competitors. We've seen it in you know, football interviews and, and other stuff. Even I think even Kevin mentioned it when we were talking about the Spartan races. That's something to be celebrated as an as an athlete that you can you can take that on the chin, go back, watch it again, take it on the chin a second time, and then find you know find yourself in a position where you're up against that same opponent again and do something different. And you know, I'd like to also hear your thoughts, Evan, because we haven't really talked. We talked about the team, and we've talked about you know support systems and and how things impact you mentally and emotionally. So. Let's talk about the audience for a second, because I would imagine that their involvement has some impact and maybe it doesn't, maybe you tune them out. One of the things and I could say, I'm that crazy fan who gets really, really loud. And like, I will be the one, I am like the ultimate cheerleader. I will, I will research and I will be in totally invested in, in a game. And when I've gone to a couple of the tours and was just able to sit out there and watch, I love sand volleyball. It's so much fun. You know, when you were talking earlier about, you know, you want to be able to feel your emotions and yet you also have to get it back under control again for you to be able to continue play. And being in the audience, you know, we are we are very invested or most people are very invested in the emotions that we're seeing from the players, too. We know if you're having an off game, we're like, oh, you know, golly, my heart's going out to this guy. He's putting everything into it and it's just not going his way. And, you know, we can tell when you're doing well, we feel your victories with you. And sometimes, you know, I would imagine that you run into situations where, you know, the audience is a fan of a certain team, depending on where you play, you know, and maybe you have more support for, for the rivalry team and not as much for you. So how does that, how do you deal with that? How does that impact your play? Yeah. So I actually love that. We actually played last year in Mexico. It was a continental tour. So it was, you know, U.S., Canada, a lot of the Caribbean islands, all of North America. And we were playing in Mexico and we were playing in the finals against the Mexico number one team. We had 3,000, I mean, it was rowdy, like Saturday or Sunday night, 3,000 drunk Mexican fans just like screaming against us. The announcers even on like the microphone. And I mean, there was not even an ounce of support for the USA. It was hilarious. I mean, usually like you feel like an announcer is like, oh, okay, yeah, we're supposed to cheer. No. This announcer is like, no, we want Mexico to win. He's like, he's starting chants while we're serving to try and mess us oh up my goodness. the fans. It was great. I think you have to have that mindset going in and, you know, frame what's about to happen, right? We're in Mexico. It's a rowdy Sunday night. We know that there's going to be a ton of rowdy Mexican fans cheering for that Mexican team. And if I come in and I'm trying to get the fans on my side, I'm probably not going to do great. I embraced the villain role there. I was like, okay, they're, they're not going to like me anyway. I'm going to embrace it. You know, kind of embracing that and taking that kind of persona in, in that moment. And just, I think for me, like we talked about, just trying to be flexible in what we can be, right? You, you have to understand going into that moment what is expected and you can use whatever that is. You've effectively turned every boo into a cheer. Exactly. It made, yeah. it motivated me more. And, you know, it's a funny, I have a really, really funny picture and we win the first set. It was a super tight first set and they were all super loud and I could just tell that they were, the fans obviously are devastated. And I just like did this to the whole crowd. 
after the after I scored the last point of the first set. And it's a really funny picture. And then, but it, it goes into the second set. And so the villain role continues to be embraced. So what the announcer started doing was he started trying to tell everybody whenever I went back to serve, everyone in the crowd was going, Shh. so I had like 3000 people going Shh, at me while I'm serving. And so I, I knew in that moment I had won them. Right. Because yeah. I had gotten to them and, and like, awesome. I was like, well, right. this feels awesome because I have the mental advantage right now. I am the one in control of all of this. So that felt great. And then we can totally flip the script and, you know, I go to new Orleans and that's where I'm from. The, the tour stop is there. It's five minutes away from my house. Everybody that I grew up with is there. They're all cheering and they're super rowdy for me. And I can in, then turn that in my favor. Right. And I can use that in, to my advantage. So you just have to know what the situation is how to embrace that situation. And you can use the crowd to your advantage if you want to. Some people don't hear anything. I hear things. And so like I, but I want to hear things and like, I I know I can't ignore things and tune things out. So rather than like trying to change that, I'm just going to change how I can respond to things and how I can use it to my advantage. That's brilliant. Brilliant. I love always talking to other athletes and see how, how they handle that situation. And I, and Sean and I have talked about this before when we're looking at different and we, and the people that we've interviewed, you know, they all, they all have a different way of handling it. When I go on stage in a bodybuilding competition, they always play music in the background and you always, and depending on the venue, like I like the smaller venues because the crowd is exponentially more intimate and and right there and louder Mm -hmm. um, versus them being really far away from the action. Those things are things I enjoy. When I step on stage, I don't hear the music at all. Like it's not purposeful. I'm just so focused. I don't, I don't hear anything, but I will hear the audience. To your point, when you were talking about Mexico, because I was in the Puerto Rico pro and we were in this small venue in Puerto Rico and the leader was Puerto Rican. And that was the loudest audience I have ever heard in my entire life. (laughs) The announcers couldn't be heard. The judges couldn't be heard. And, you know, at first it was really intimidating because you hear this crowd. They're going absolutely crazy. You know who the favorite is, you know. But but to your point, if you have the mental strength to flip it and use that as a motivator, you know, you can really put it on to your advantage. But it speaks to your maturity as an athlete that you talked a little bit earlier about how you've been confident in sports since you were younger. And I'm sure with all the other sports that you've played as well, it has contributed to your mental strength at this point in time with your career. Yeah. And I think it's actually funny because like growing up, it was like my worst thing. My mom would always yell at me because like I wasn't super aggressive growing up and like confident. And I had, I mean, I hit puberty pretty late. So I grew late and everything. And but I do know, like when I started playing volleyball, like I, I found that confidence for some reason. And it was, but it's such a weak point of athletics because I just wasn't fully confident in myself. It's, I think that lack of confidence early on in my career and my life. And, you know, there's a lot of people just doubt in sports in general. Like, I don't think anyone would ever expect it that out of my high school class that I would have been the person that go to play professional sports. I mean, we had... 25 kids go off and play D1 sports and from my school and, you know, Louisiana is a huge football state. I don't think I was ever looked at as the athlete or anything. I mean, like we talked about, I was super successful in school. So I was more looked at as kind of like the nerd that, and then they're like, Oh, you play volleyball. Like that's not really like a thing in Louisiana. It wasn't ever looked at as like, I was like really an athlete. And so I think kind of proving those people wrong, that's kind of always been my mindset is just, I've always felt like I've had to prove people wrong and that there's never been, like, I've never felt like I've gotten like justice for, for what I'm doing. And 
you know, I feel like I'm working super hard and I'm doing the same thing as a lot of other people and I wasn't getting the same recognition and that was just kind of frustrating to me. So I think that kind of translated into this confidence that I have now. It's got to feel good for you too, right? So, you know, you just said, you know, volleyball kind of wasn't a thing in Louisiana, but now you're known as the Louisiana road dog and you're the, the first son of Louisiana volleyball. Like that's, you know, these are not easy monikers to, to achieve, but yet here you are. You know, it's super awesome. And I, I mean, I'm just so excited to see where the sport goes in Louisiana and first person to, to play D1 and the first person to get a scholarship from there. I come back, what, I've been out of college for four, three or four years now, even since high school. So seven years now. Since that time, since I've graduated high school in Louisiana, we've now seen, I think, eight or nine kids go and play college ball of some sort of level. That's just, to me, in that itself is huge growth. And then you go and look from whenever I played club volleyball there, we didn't have tryouts. We didn't have anything. We had eight kids and we all showed up and that was our team. Now, like I go back and I coach after I'm done college, we're running tryouts. We're asking who's going to be on what team. And I was like, this is, I mean, just that growth in itself. I was like, this is huge. And I think it's just going to continue to get bigger and bigger. So I'm super excited to see where it goes with all that. Yeah, that's what success looks like. Now, you've also, you've done a lot of things for the community. I followed you for a little while now, and I've noticed that when you go places, particularly here in the U.S., you're putting on clinics for the local communities. I mean, what's the driving force behind that? You know, obviously, one, it's always nice whenever you go somewhere and you can pick up a little extra money. But like, for me, I think a lot of people think that's where it comes from is to just try and make money. But for me, I think it's, you know, I came from an area where volleyball isn't super prevalent. And a lot of these places we go, like volleyball isn't a huge thing. And a lot of the places that we're we're doing these clinics aren't in the California stops. They're not in the the main big hubs of volleyball in the U.S. It's in, you know, Atlanta, Georgia. It's in South Carolina. I'll go and do stuff. In the middle of Ohio, we did one in Chicago. Obviously, Louisiana. I, I love volleyball so much. And I think being able to give back and hopefully inspire somebody is where a lot of it comes from. We do a lot of junior stuff. If I can, I would prefer to do juniors because I think it means a lot more to them later on down the road. And adults are super grateful, super appreciative. But for me to be able to try and be that, I started playing volleyball because Evan Corey came to this clinic and taught me something means a lot more to me than the adults coming and giving me some money. That was obviously feels good, but just like the gratification of being able to help, whether it be confidence wise, volleyball wise, like just being able to help out kids in some sort of way has just always been huge for me. Well, I'm still a kid at heart. And if I'm ever in an area where you're doing a clinic, I'm coming so that you can teach me how to properly set. That's my best skill I'm good at teaching it. So we'll get it down. We'll get it dialed in. So I I just really have kind of two more questions for you. One was there anything that inspired you or influenced you as a youth to take on volleyball? Selfishly, I, I'm saying this because my inspiration initially was the 1990 C. Thomas Howell movie, Side Out, right? <laughs> you had Randy Stoklos and Sinjin Smith were featured in this, and they were the star volleyball athletes at the time. For me, honestly, it was my parents played out at Coconut Beach which is like one of those big barn grills that they just throw the same volleyball courts on. They get people there and they try and get them to drink. So they call them like beer leagues or whatever out there. And 
my parents were playing a beer league. They're off on like court 19 or something like that, super far down. It's really just for them and their friends to go and drink on like a Thursday night. And I was like 13, 14 years old at that point. And so couldn't drive or anything. So I'd go out and watch while my mom played. And I'm, but I played sports growing up. Like I played everything. I played football, basketball, baseball. I played hockey, roller hockey. We don't have much ice down in Louisiana, (laughs) but um, yeah. So I played, I played a lot of sports growing up. And so, you know, just that, like I, like I talked about, like just competition and wanting to compete has always kind of been a part of me when I see another sport. I was like, oh, I want to play. And, but my parents would never let me play. It was their friend's team, them and their friends. And then one day they just, they needed a sub. They couldn't find a sub. And so last second, 14-year-old Evan got subbed into the game, loved it. And the it just kind of took off from there. The complex owner, his name is Bruce White. He's always been pretty big about trying to, to help, especially on the boys' side, because, you know, girls volleyball in general on the junior side is pretty big nationwide. But like I said, and from being the first person to ever go and play D1, it wasn't ever really a thing in Louisiana. And so he was always really big on trying to get juniors boys to come out and trying to grow the game that way. And he kind of took me under his wing a little bit, gave me a lot of opportunities and helped me out with my game. And that's just kind of where it grew from. Yeah, that's how I started playing. If somebody was asking me, like, who do I look up to in volleyball or who was like my idol? I, I don't really have one from watching volleyball or anything like if anything i started watching volleyball on youtube after i started playing already yeah it's not like i really have an answer on oh yeah i watched this one person i watched this one thing i guess i watched my mom and my dad enough to where they pissed me off that they wouldn't let me play so i started playing <laughs> that's fair <laughs> yeah but that is the that is the answer right your your parents were it and they Good for them. So obviously, you know, they introduced you to the sport. They, they've obviously supported you throughout your journey. And that just says a lot about them as, as parents and, you know, what it takes to support a, a child athlete. And then I guess if we go into sports in general, I think my biggest driving force of loving sports and being able to be a pro athlete now and be able to inspire people. I think the, in, the wanting to inspire and wanting to help and do things came from the 2006 New Orleans Saints. And when Drew Brees first came into the city and post Katrina, it was, we were all pretty down and it just seemed like, I don't know if the city was ever going to come back and be what it was. And, you know, that team led, obviously led by Drew, but for the next five years of my life, which is, was a huge growth period. That was my second grade through like my seventh grade, which is, you know, that's a very impressionable time. You understand a lot of things going on at that point and being able to watch like how just a football team was able to transform a city. I think sports wise is what really I loved watching and then kind of inspired me to, to play. Well, Louisiana is setting all kinds of bars for sports, right? LSU just won the world series of college baseball. Yeah. Louisiana so is a force to be reckoned with, with in, uh, <laughs> sports in general. I mean, I don't think people realize how good Louisiana is at sports. Well, they're definitely making it known. So what's 2024 look like for you? Uh, in the process of figuring that out, it's kind of have to be kind of a shift in focus. Beginning of this year was the beginning of Olympic qualifying. And that was obviously a hope. It was more of a long shot hope. But being able to go through the qualifying process for this Olympics, I felt like would be very valuable as far as trying to push towards 2028, which is like, a huge goal for me because I feel like that's right when 
my like my prime is like as far as like age and experience that's usually what they consider to be your volleyball prime is like your early to mid 30s but i felt like it would be super valuable in order for me to do that to at least experience how it all happens the first time and you know the ups and downs what could be the possible struggles what could be the possible like pitfalls of teams and you know being able to be close enough to witness teams and seeing what's happening on a weekly basis, watching who's succeeding, watching who's not succeeding and seeing what that looks like, I think is going to be extremely valuable. And going into 2024, I'll obviously be able to watch and kind of see who, who stays successful and how they go about this mini off season of, so for beach volleyball, Olympic qualifying is 16 months long. And they take your best 12 finishes out of those 16 months. So it's a long process. It's extremely tough. It requires a very good body of work. It's not like you're at a trials where you have to perform once. You have to maintain for 16 months your highest level of play, which is not easy. So I think even just kind of recognizing how does my body feel at this point and continuing to learn through this 16-month process, how, how does this all work, is going to be beneficial but 2024 I think is just going to continue to to build off of the success I've had my first two years on tour continue to try and build internationally and try and be more of a mainstay on the international tour yeah and just continue to build and build and obviously like I just said the goal is 2028 just put myself in a position to to be successful year after year until it really matters for that 2027 January 1st you don't you don't strike me as a guy who fails to achieve goals. So I'm expecting to see you in the Olympics in 2028 now. I definitely set lofty goals and sometimes they're a little bit crazy, but that's the best you know, way. That's the only way. There's not a single goal that I haven't set out for myself yet that I haven't achieved. Obviously people put timelines on goals and I haven't achieved goals timeline wise, but everything that I've always set out to do, I've always achieved it. So let's hope let's hope 2028 that'll be great. We'll be cheering for you. Absolutely. Well, Evan, absolutely inspiring conversation. And thanks so much for being here today. This has been this has been great. Yeah, of course. Thank y'all so much for having me on. Keep your eye on the Blue Nose Legend in the making and join us again next time for the Inspired Fitness Podcast. Until then, we wish you a healthy mind, a healthy body, and healthy habits. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Inspired Fitness, leading you to a healthy mind, healthy body, and healthy habits. To stay inspired, visit us at inspiredfitness.net. That's I-N-S-P-I-R-D dot net. Until next time, stay inspired.